Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, will be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness, as all of these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking about hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or low libido, in the premenopausal woman. My guests are Dr. Kim Fuller, owner of Cleveland Sex and Intimacy Counseling, associate professor at Cleveland State University in the School of Social Work, a certified sex therapist, and a board member of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Also, we have Dr. Sally McFedrin, who's an obstetrician-gynecologist with Metro Health in Cleveland, an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She has a focus on menopause and sexual health. She is a board member of the International Society of the Study of Women's Sexual Health, and also a board member of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Please enjoy this podcast. Today we have Drs. Fuller and McFedrin, and we're very happy to have both of these physicians because we're starting a new topic today. First of all, just thank you for coming. Dr. Fuller, thank you. And, and Dr. McFedron, thank you very much for being here. Appreciate your, your presence. We want to go in today examining a, a new topic on sexual dysfunction, a new cause of sexual dysfunction, and that is low libido or hypoactive sexual uh, desire disorder or HSDD for short. We're looking at this in premenopausal women and we will have another podcast in the future looking at this same topic but for postmenopausal. But but let's get started today and I I'd like to start off with Sally w- would you define for us what HSDD is? Sure, Dr. Gibbs, thank you so much for inviting us and love to be here with my colleague, Dr. Fuller. So in terms of HSPD or hypoactive sexual desire disorder, to define it, there's usually a few key elements that are necessary. First, we want to make sure that there is either an absence or a reduction in the sexual desire. And this can, you know, have many different forms. Because women's sexual desire, there's a huge spectrum. So this can be in the form of spontaneous desire or like what we would consider like the natural urge or fantasies, or it can be receptive desire. And that's responding to sexual cues that a woman would naturally find arousing or erotic to them. So it's either an absence or a reduction in one or both of those. It also needs to cause distress to the individual. It also should be there for three months or longer. And then lastly, to actually fit the definition of HSCD, it should not be the result of any other factor. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but other factors meaning medical conditions, medications, psychiatric conditions, 
relationship dysfunction. So the sexual desire needs to be separate from any of those entities. Another thing that we should also talk about is just in terms of defining it, we also define it in terms of whether it's primary or secondary. Primary being it's been there forever, like a woman says, oh, I've never had desire ever, or I've always had low desire. Or secondary meaning they had desire at a certain level at one point in their life, and then now is much less or gone. It can also be defined in terms of generalized or specific, like in, like a, to a certain situation. So generalized would be, you know, the hottest man or hottest woman in the world walks in the room and you still feel nothing. So generalized to all part, potential partners or specific to a certain individual and that we would say is situational. So that's usually how we define that. How prevalent is this? We, we talk about that it's the biggest cause of dysfunction. How, how prevalent is this? So some of the first population survey studies done in the 80s, just generally, you know, sent out the bed or cold called people or sent out surveys. And they found about 40% of people reported a sexual dysfunction. And that wasn't necessarily broken down just to desire. That was all sexual dysfunction. So desire, arousal problems, orgasm problems, or sexual pain. But nowadays we really look at that key component of distress for the individual. And we think that some of the newer studies that are, again, population studies, somewhere between 10 to 20%. One of the biggest studies is the Preside study, which has like 30,000 women in it that responded to this survey. And that's 10 to 20% just reporting sexual desire problems that have distress, like personal distress. Either it's causing them fear, anxiety, frustration, some kind of angst about their sexual desire. Well, and I think just to add on to what you're saying, Sally, one thing that feels really important too when it comes to distress is that it's self-distress and not necessarily partner's distress because a lot of folks will show up into office saying, my partner feels distressed about my level of desire while that woman may feel absolutely no concern about their level of desire personally. That's a great point because I was just thinking in this preside study, they show that it increases like the level of sexual desire problems increase with age, but the distress decreases with age. So, and also women have more perception of distress when they have a partner, which I think mm -hmm. is interesting because there's some interrelational component of the perception of desire too. Thank you. I like that interplay of ideas. Kim, would you get us started on the discussion of making the diagnosis? And would you kind of develop the biopsychosocial assessment idea, please? So it depends on if the person shows up individualistically or within a couple. At my practice, we get a quite a mixture of where this presents. But even if somebody shows up within a couple system, we always meet with them individually to just get an idea of what they're going on without their partner in their room and to be able to get a bit of their own individual sexual history. So when we do these initial screenings, we'll ask women about you know, how they feel about their level of desire. We'll ask them, again, that key question of how, how distressed do you feel about this? We ask a lot about when this started, so to, to get an idea if it's maybe primary or secondary, and then whether or not it's been with all partners or in specific situations, or even if there's been an inciting incident that might have occurred that led to the level of desire decreasing. We also want to see 
how this sort of aligns with their ideal level of desire. So for, for many folks, that is a question that can be contingent upon a partner with how much they, they do or don't want to have desire within their relationship. So some folks use a screener. It can be helpful to do like a five question screener. For me, often it's based more on a conversation of tell me about your, your sexual experiences. Tell me about your sexual partners in the past. What's it like for you in your current relationship? I break down often different components of the relationship. You know, talk to me about your communication, what's going on in that level. Talk to me about how your partner initiates sex. What is your level of romanticism and intimacy like between the two of you? What has been your trauma experiences in this relationship and also trauma experiences in the past? Because all of these things can affect one's level of desire. And there can also be other variables outside of the relationship, like being stressed at work might make you feel like you have no desire to have sex at home because you just don't have the time or the capacity. Or if you have children or have a new child, desire can ebb and flow for that for that woman. And we know women often have the second shift experience where they go into work and then they come home and they have their family to take care of. And so Desire can sometimes be lower because of that, because of that time of life where it feels like there's there's more stress for her. So we're looking at, at really quite a broad picture to really try to determine what might be affecting this woman's level of desire. One thing we also unpack too is, is the idea around a desire discrepancy. And so this is important to understand like where their level of desire is comparison to their partner. And some women may mark lower levels of desire than they would like to have. And it still may be in the higher desire realm. They may want to have sex five times during the week, but they may have wanted to have sex seven days during the week. And so they feel that level of distress because it has significantly decreased from what they used to uh, enjoy. And so we sort of see where does that align with what your partner's wanting and where where is that distress for you? Is it, again, your personal distress or is it your partner that's really feeling distressed by this change? I, I just wanted to add, I, I think that's huge. The, per, the personal perception of their desire. Many times there's women who come in and say, I've always had low desire. And one of the first questions I'll ask them is, what makes you think? What have you compared yourself to to think that you have low desire. And I'll, I'll usually use the analogy that desire is a lot like height and weight. Some things, like every woman, there's different heights, there's different weights. We all, there's always gonna be somebody who has more desire than you or less. There's always gonna, and that's spontaneous or receptive desire. Some of the things are easy fixes between, you know, Dr. Fuller and myself. Some we can just put on heels and they can be taller. Some of them require some serious dedication and exercise to change your weight, you know? And so regardless of what their perception is, how they compare themselves to either a television show, a movie, social stigma in the movies and in magazines to come up with the fact that they think that they have no desire, they're, they're still distressed about it. And we have to address that. And if they're dedicated sometimes with, sex therapy and sometimes medication, we can help them achieve their goals. Kim, you know, when you are talking to patients about this, tell us how you get to that diagnosis of HSDD, you know, as you're talking and gathering this information 
How do you get to that diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we take the same criteria that clinicians do and use that for diagnosing. So we would go off the ICD-10 standard and look across those variables that Sally really identified. And if we give the screener, that's helpful, but mostly we just ask those various domains. We also suss out is there anything else going on in the sexuality realm? Are there also challenges with arousal or orgasm? Is there a pain issue? Since that can also affect desire levels. And again, if somebody's showing up in a partner relationship context, we always meet with that person individually just to see if their answers change at all with their partner not being in the room. That's great. Sally, how do you come to that diagnosis with your background of HSDD? So certainly being a sexual medicine provider, I have the luxury of having long intakes, just as Dr. Fuller does. I personally recommend the DSDS as the screener. I think that Dr. Fuller is referring to the sexual desire screening. Um, Decreased sexual desire screener. Yes, I know. DSDS. So that's the five questions. Was. The first four questions really just assess the patient's sexual desire, whether it's decreased or absent if they have distress from it, how long it's been going on. And then the last question, question five, really addresses that biopsychosocial element. If there's other things that are contributing, like she's already gone over, like medical issues, medications, relationship. When I see somebody in the office, I don't necessarily screen because they've already been sent to me specifically for you know either less desire or they have a desire concern. So my role is to kind of tease out what is the primary thing and educate that woman on sexual desire, the different spectrums of you know, sexual desire, and help them understand that this is really a multidisciplinary approach. As a clinician, I can work within the biological elements, like looking at their medications, looking at their other medical conditions, because there's a huge co-association with various medical conditions, but just to name a few. So incontinence. 50% of women over 50 have incontinence. A majority have problems with their sexual function. And specifically, sexual desire with stress incontinence is very common. Just like for men, there's concerns with any kind of chronic illness. So diabetes, high blood pressure, if they've had chronic pain, those are all have a very high association with desire. Similarly, women with depression and anxiety also have a much higher rate. About a third of women with depression have sexual desire problems. And the medications then, that's another aspect. I'll look at the medications. If they're on an SSRI for their depression or anxiety, if they're on a beta blocker, if they're longstanding diabetes. So I'll look at the things that I can address and maybe talk to their primary care doctor, their psychologist, their neurologist some of the ancillary people that might be prescribing or taking care of these other pain conditions and see where we can make headroads in terms of, you know, adjusting things that might be impacting their desire. And then also as a clinician, I can, you know, help with the, the treatments, the medical treatments. But my role, I try and see where the primary issue is that could be impacting it. All the secondary issues do what I can do to optimize their sexual response, and then we'll incorporate sex therapy using Dr. Fuller and her group um, for almost every patient that has this condition. You know, I really appreciate the, the way you work this up. I would ask you, you know, as a you know, somebody who is just learning about this, you're, you're both 
very seasoned in this whole sexual medicine arena. But, you know, somebody who's just starting or a primary care who's really interested in helping people with this, you know, they're shy about this. And, and how would you encourage people to just ask? We always talk about, you just got to ask. Could I get both of you to comment about encouraging our listeners on just asking and how to do it? Yeah, I think the first thing that I would tell folks is is to ask the question just in general, like, how's your sex life with your significant other? Because that allows them a wide variety of answers and allows that person to kind of dig down the path. And then the way that I often bring it up to folks who are maybe a little shyer to talk about it, I'll, I'll say something maybe more specific to the effect of, you know, some folks report really struggling with having the desire or the interest to engage in sex. Sometimes they don't have fantasies, but they feel like they would like to fantasize more or they have them less often than they used to. Or sometimes they, they feel like they don't want to engage with their spouse and they really used to want to do that. Have you noticed any changes in your level of desire? with your significant other, or even in your desire to masturbate. And by kind of giving folks a little bit of language and a little bit of examples, I feel like it really helps to normalize the question and then normalize that it's it's okay to talk about their sex life. Because I think that with a lot of patients, you may be the very first person who has ever given them space to talk about their sex life without it feeling like there's shame or that it's problematic, or it's taboo to talk about the topic. So I think really working on your own level of comfort of just speaking about sex can be really, really beneficial to your patients. Sally, what would you tell people? So as a physician, not somebody who's used to doing therapy all the time, we simplify it in the ask, tell, ask, which is really fun to hear the therapist's perspective. So the ask just like Dr. Fuller said, you know, throw the general open-ended question. Are you having any difficulties or questions about your sex life or sexuality? I usually will throw it out there general, just like Dr. Fuller said, and you don't have to be an expert. And this is where a lot of clinicians feel intimidated because they don't want the response being anything other than no. They're just like, no problems, no questions. But when you get a yes, you know, thanks for, you know, asking doc, I do have some questions, then clinicians automatically just like, oh, dear Lord, what have I opened myself up into? And the thing is, you don't have to be worried because a lot of times they will share their story. You just give them a space to share their story. You know, you can be reassuring and say, there's a lot of women going through exactly what you said, whether it's related to, you know, menopause, related to a change in their, you know, job, they've got a new job. They have a new baby. You can say many women who have a new baby, you know, they just don't put the time in or don't have, don't feel that they have the time to give to another individual at this time. And that's, you know, very, very common. I always try and stay away from using the word normal because then everybody wants to use normal. So I just say, you know, it's very common. A lot of women feel this way. And then this is where you can ask the question, you know, what is the most bothersome? What is the most troubling? You know, what can I do for you? And you don't have to have the answer, but you can at least, if you know in your, you have your pocket full of references or referrals, you can say, I know somebody and this is where I can send you. 
but just giving them that space to share their story, they will often feel heard and not necessarily feel that you're not being able to take care of them. You can say, you know, thank you for sharing. I have a great colleague who specializes in this. It'll be, you know, wonderful to help you feel better about, you know, your sexual desire. But just like she said, being open to listen to their story. I, I hear a lot of people equate person's sexuality with the quality of life and even their medical health. And I think both of you have kind of alluded to these things. Would both of you comment on quality of life and even medical health when you delve into sexual questions? Sure. So as I mentioned, you know, a lot of women with chronic illnesses have sexual side effects and vice versa. So I don't know that anybody's really teased out which is the chicken and which is the egg, but they are often so associated and certainly with relationships. When there is a discrepancy in sexual desire that causes conflict, if the couple is not talking about it, it creates more conflict, it's never resolved. It's hard to say whether there was actually a sexual dysfunction to you know, start with, or this is just a communication issue. But again, the interplay between how the individual woman is feeling and their medical health and their relationship and their quality of life, it's hard to say which one comes first, but there is such an overlap. Most of these studies that look at the prevalence very often associate a high association with decreasing quality of life and frustration and work stress. And like I mentioned, depression, anxiety, and relationship conflict. Well, it certainly underscores the reason why we should all ask people about their sexual health. So we have a diagnosis. And Kim, when it comes to uh, treatment, what do you start with? Where do you go with your treatment? So once we've determined what might be leading to the situation, if it's a person's past individualistic situation, we might start diving into like family of origin topics and start working through some of that or even religion unpack some of that that might be filtering into the conversation. If they have trauma, there might be a lot of trauma work that needs to be done before a person can actually be truly present and being able to talk about their sex life because the idea of them being interested in sex feels so foreign because when they think about sex, they think about these traumatic experiences. And so if a person is presenting with any of those concerns, that's sort of one of the big things that either I or my colleagues might unpack, depending on if a person's showing up to me individually or as a part of a couple system. So sometimes folks need both relationship and individual counseling to work through those things. And so there's a lot of that underlying thematic work, sort of restructuring narrative work that I think can sometimes be some really deep, heavy, and sometimes longer work for that person. There are also some short-term interventions that might work and are helpful when we're talking about couples coming in or, or a person coming home with information to share with their partner. One thing is sensate focus, which is an age-old tactic where you sort of slowly escalate in terms of sexual experiences with one's partner, starting with a very benign close off, but just spending some time together, non-sexually touching one another, 
to just sort of desensitize at that process and, and to build just a little bit of comfort in the discomfort that might come with doing nothing with a person while naked. And then slowly work to build adding in levels of more physical intimacy until you get to a place where the couple either one ideally fails the homework because they've had to have sex and they only were at level two, but they, they needed to have intercourse or they work to a place where they start to build comfort level enough to where they can start to engage in intercourse or whatever kind of sexual experiences is the peak of their sexual experiences together. And so this really helps to build some of that desire and reconnection. Sometimes it needs a little bit of oomph in talking about things like passion because sense focus isn't necessarily the most passionate experience. It's, it's connecting, it's intimate, but it's not like, it, it's not a driving force. So you might have to in, infiltrate a little of building passion into those experiences, which can sometimes be as a nice builder for desire. Some folks could benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the working through and deconstructing unhelpful narratives or thought processes that may be affecting behaviors and feelings about sex, about their partner, and so a little bit of what I was talking about before with the narrative work, that that might be a little bit more weighty, where this can be taking maybe unhelpful or irrational thoughts about sex and working to change them to more helpful or rational thoughts about sex. Sometimes this may also include specific behavioral interventions. So giving them tips or strategies that they're going to try in their sex life the next time they have a sexual encounter, or maybe even giving them homework to try to have sex a certain amount of times during the week and just see what happens when they do and see what, what variables might make them more interested in having sex. And the other thing that we might do as well is to help folks kind of engage in more of a mindfulness practice. So kind of checking in with their body, checking in with what their body cues are, kind of working to change the way that their, their mind and their body collectively respond when it comes to sex. So in a super quick case, it might take us a handful of sessions and if somebody has a traumatic history and has lots of narrative unpacking to do, some folks can be in therapy for uh, perhaps a year or greater working through everything that underlies their desire. Sally, what, what do you do in the treatment arena? I know there's a lot of neuroendocrine therapies. What do you use in that arena? So this is really interesting. So in terms of sexual desire, I don't think they've ever been able to pinpoint exactly what is the neurobiological or endocrine factor that drives sexual desire, because I think it's varied in many women. So in general, when we talk about areas of the brain that are responsible for stimulating or responding to sexual desire, it's the prefrontal cortex and a, a lot of you know smaller areas near the hypothalamus. But in general, serotonin is a decreases sexual desire and dopamine and norepinephrine are increasing or excitatory for sexual desire. And then we also have our female hormones and male hormones, estrogen and testosterone. So what I usually explain to women is we don't know exactly what your hormone and neurochemistry was when you had good desire, but it would be awesome if we did. We don't have the lab test, we can't test it, and we can't duplicate it, but we kind of can evaluate whether or not certain things. So I have some women where 
they would say, I always felt the horniest or the most sexual desire mid-cycle, like when they, you know, ovulated. That could be a surge in their estrogen or testosterone. Estrogen can get to the brain, can stimulate areas in the prefrontal cortex, and can help with some of those areas that maybe have more dopamine. Some women maybe have less dopamine, some maybe respond less to their estrogen. There's no way of knowing, but that's kind of how I approach it, trying to get a sense like when things were good, what was going on. The women who report that they had really high sex drive during pregnancy, I'm always thinking, ah, maybe it's a higher estrogen. Of course, we can't give premenopausal women estrogen because they're already making bunches of it and it's not necessarily indicated for it. But definitely when we're getting close to menopause in our perimenopausal phase, your testosterone decreases in the late 30s and then continues to decline through menopause. But it's also a major factor and, and has been studied and found to be safe and indicated in our perimenopausal women as a possible medication that would improve desire. In terms of FDA-approved medicines, so testosterone is currently off-label, but in terms of approved FDA medications, there's two of them. One is fulbanserin, or called Addy. This one is a medication that initially came out for depression, but did not necessarily cut the mustard with the questionnaires for improving depression, but they did find that it had this wonderful side effect of improving sexual desire in women. So then they did many, many tests on thousands of women and found that about 55% of women responded and had better desire while they were on Addy or Fulbanserin. You take 100 milligrams at bedtime, pretty you know, common you know, in terms of central side effects of dizziness and uh, feeling tired or fatigued, nausea, headaches, but nothing more significant than 10% of the women, not very many people discontinued it. So it's pretty well tolerated. Some women, you know, if they drink alcohol, there was a little concern about it, but, you know, they don't want you drinking excessively with the answer, and that's a major downfall of that. And so for my young college-age women, it's probably not the best choice. That one you take every single day. Vilesi or brimalanotide is the other one. This is an injectable, like an on-demand. So again, it kind of, I tailor it to the couple. I will talk about both options. But brimalanotide in general is for couples that are maybe much more established because you can only use it up to eight times a month or twice a week. And it usually takes about 45 minutes for the onset of it. So you kind of got a point, right? So is this date night? Is this our Saturday at 10 p.m.? Which <laughs> the average time that a, a couple has sexual relations. So you got to time it like that. This one has a little bit more on the way of side effects. It's about 40% have nausea, which is a, a lot. It does decrease with every single dose that you use, but it is nice. And more than 60, 65% of women respond to this. And I've had much better success with response, but a harder sell because it's an injectable. And it's a little tiny needle. But for this one, the, the women who tried this, I think it's fantastic. It's like a, a game changer for their relationship. But both Addy and Ilesi affect the prefrontal cortex in the brain and increase dopamine. So that's the possible way that they think it's working, either suppressing the serotonin, blocking the serotonin, and therefore increasing dopamine in the brain. 
and and again testosterone we we're not exactly sure how it's working either but it's also working in that area to increase desire and some women need a combination so some people might benefit from especially our perimenopausal women they might benefit from a combination of one of the you know bilisi or addy and a combination with testosterone or just testosterone like I said, if we could test the woman when they have great desire and know what their neurochemistry and their estrogen and their testosterone are doing and be able to replicate it, it would be amazing. But we don't have that capability. So it's a little bit trial and error. So I tell women, you know, we have to kind of gauge with you and see. That's my approach once I've obviously made that diagnosis. So we know you both work together and you obviously listening to your talk, you both bring some very important evaluation and management ideas to the table for the, the young person working in a smaller city. They, they may not have a Kim and they may not have a Sally that, uh, that they can look to. Can you give us some ideas of what you tell somebody in a smaller town of how to help people out and how to work in the therapist. Tell us a little bit just how you guys work together. Yeah, I mean, in a more rural space or a smaller town, depending on where a person is within the country, they'll have a variety of experiences with accessing at least a therapist. There is in every state at least one sex therapist, but in some states, there are not a lot of sex therapists. And even in our area of Northeast Ohio, there are a handful of us that are certified. So looking for at least somebody who's certified in the area who is willing to do telehealth, thankfully now that it's becoming much more common practice, is at least a, a good place to start, though many folks do have wait lists right now. There might be some folks who are somewhat competent in the area, and are at least willing to talk about sexuality, even if they aren't educated. And so finding folks like that is maybe a secondary option. But the ideal would be trying to get in contact with somebody who is ASAC certified or, or STAR on STAR's website, because those folks have had some experience and training in, in sexuality and know at least enough about female sexual disorders to be able to help therapeutically. Sally, how do you do this working together with the Kims of the world? So if I can just go back and address one of the, somebody who's just starting out or a primary care physician, trying to keep things simple for them. So one screen ask, use the DSDS five question screener. And that simplifies things because if you're not comfortable asking, then you just have the screener. And I would say there's two, there's two thoughts of it. So one, if you have the time and you can ask questions that address this biopsychosocial relationship model and, a, and figure out where the primary thing is, issues and find a sex therapist, that would be the ideal. If that's not possible, it is possible to prescribe the medications, the Addy, Bradlisi, as long as you know what the side effects are and how to explain it, which you can find that easily on their websites. Just caution the patients that, I mean, if there are other factors that are affecting their sexual desire, there's no magic pill that's going to make that relationship better. There's no magic pill that's going to make you less stressed at work. 
and there's no magic pill that's going to make your chronic pain and fatigue change your sex life. So unless those other factors are, you know, not an issue, I mean, there's really, except for the side effects, there's no harm in trying one of the medications. Since I get to work with him, that's not necessarily my approach. So I will refer to, we have several sex therapists in Cleveland. Dr. Fuller's office is my, my primary go-to office. Um, so I will say every patient will benefit from a sex therapist. Only a handful actually need medication because sexual desire is so complicated and it's so complex. There's so many factors that are involved that medication really is for a subgroup. But again, if you're a primary care and you're just starting out, there's really no harm in trying as long as there's no interplay with any other medications that they're on and the side effects. What would you, uh, for your students that you have, what's a pearl that you would leave our learners with today? Like Dr. Fuller said, try to first address how you can talk to your patients about sex. So some of that is just sharing with a friend, having eye contact, talking about sexual function, having relaxed posture, um, just having that sense that it's okay to talk about it, whether or not you're going to treat it. I think just having that question, because like you mentioned, it impacts every aspect of that individual's life whether it's their relationship, whether it's their work, whether it's their medical, you know, life, it affects everything. It's one of our fundamental reasons for being here. So I think just being able to be comfortable talking about that. And I think for me, just, I, I think that is a, maybe the golden nugget overall with everything, Sally. And I think the the other thing is really listening to that individual person, their experiences, their telling even if it doesn't sound like it's a problem from your perspective, or if it wouldn't be a problem in your relationship, or if it's their partner saying it's a problem, none of that matters. It's what that individual person is saying about their own experiences with their sex life that is important. So be sure to to listen to that first and foremost. Well, thank you so much to both of you for taking time out of your very busy schedule I'll remind you how many emails it took to get this little group together. Uh, you guys are busy, and I and I love it. But but thank you for taking a minute out so we could share your knowledge and experience. So thanks again. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.